Well, this morning we are back in Luke chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles. We are slowly making our way through Luke chapter 6. I did warn you, we're in the middle of one of Jesus' great sermons, and there's so much here that Jesus is saying and doing, so we've been taking our time with it, and we're looking at the next section of that today, the middle of what is often called in Luke's gospel the Sermon on the Plain, or probably in correspondence with the way Matthew has it as the longer, the fuller Sermon on the Mount. And so far, we've seen a couple of things in this sermon. We've seen those strange blessings and warnings that Jesus used, the Beatitudes, to open this sermon, calling things like poverty and mourning and persecution blessed, and warning those who, those who laugh too easily, who find themselves constantly full, who find themselves approved by everyone. We looked at how those words must have been a shock to the crowd, particularly those in the crowd who were pressing into Jesus to see miracles and to see the great signs that he was doing. And yet Jesus would speak of the blessing of poverty, the blessing of mourning and persecution. And how much more so must those disciples have been shocked by those words, those 12 apostles having just been named by Jesus and stood before the crowd, imagining all of the great things that was before them, and then hearing their teacher say, blessed are you when people persecute you because of who I am, the son of man. This sermon had already started in ways people hadn't expected, and we saw that continue last week. Jesus began to speak about loving one's enemies And we saw how Jesus' goal was not just to include some new kind of love, but rather to turn their attention to the way in which God had loved them, that they served a God who had showed them great mercy and great love, even when they were enemies of this God. And so that view of God, what they had received from him, should be changing and impacting the way that they treated others. We're going to get something similar. Jesus continues this conversation in the section we look at today. And we're going to see how it directly connects to all of these points, builds on these things Jesus has been saying. Last week, I commented that Jesus' words, love your enemies, might be among the most familiar words of all of his teachings. If we went out today and we surveyed complete strangers that we encountered on the street and asked them, what did Jesus teach? I imagine one of the things that some of them would come up with was love your enemies. And certainly one of the other commands you would hear from people was judge not. (laughs) My guess is that might actually be the most well-known, particularly today. People know that Jesus said, do not judge others lest you be judged. But my experience is that's usually about as far as people remember from this section of Jesus's sermon. And so our goal today is to once again look at what is perhaps among Jesus's most familiar words But try to allow ourselves to hear beyond the sort of cliche those words sometimes become, this full teaching of what Jesus is saying and trying to teach us in this section of his sermon. So if you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 37. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. Judge not, Jesus said, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, 
Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. We'll pause there, Luke chapter 6. The first thing that should pretty obviously be clear to you is Jesus is talking about more in this passage than just a warning against judging others. I think that's pretty clear from reading the whole section. Though those are certainly the words most well remembered, there's something bigger Jesus has his eye on in this passage. We've been doing a lot of work over the last few weeks that show, to show that Jesus was very much a teacher, a Jewish teacher of the first century. And it shows up in so many of the conversations that Jesus is having, his particular interest in discussing the law. That has been one of the central questions of this whole section of Luke's gospel in those early days of Jesus' ministry. Teachers of the law continued coming, asking about his interpretation of things like fasting or the Sabbath. And even here, Jesus over and over turns to these questions about how the law should be applied and lived. The thing we've been pointing out is that each time Jesus speaks, he doesn't sort of wander around the countryside giving ethical sayings. Over and over, Jesus turns to the scriptures. He quotes the scriptures and argues from the stories of scripture and interprets the law of scripture. And don't forget, Luke has set this particular scene in that setting, Jesus coming off the mountain, having prayed alone, and then teaching this sermon. It's parallel with the story of Moses descending from the mountain and giving the law to the people. And so now Jesus enters into this conversation about how the law should be lived. The truth is, in that Jewish world, these conversations that Jesus is wading into, the entire Jewish mindset was set around the idea of judging. These conversations have all been about judging. How should the law be lived? And how should the law be applied? Who is reading the law correctly? And who is missing the point of the law? Every Jew thought of their religion and their thinking of the law as a kind of judging and interpreting of how it should be applied to the life that they were living. Their whole lives were lived in this context of judging how the law taught them to act in any given situation. It would be a very strange thing for Jesus, who has been entering into all of these debates, judging and discerning the meaning of the law, to suddenly say, we should abandon all judgment. Judge not, my new ruling in all conversations. Actually, what you find across the whole gospel with Jesus is him over and over returning to these proper judgments. No one ever remembers these verses. We always remember this particular Luke 6 verse, judge not. But in Luke 7, we read Jesus speaking to a man interpreting the law. You have judged rightly, Jesus approves him. In Luke 19, I will judge you with your own words, Jesus says to some opponents. In Luke 22, he tells his disciples that one day they will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes. Or in John's gospel, Jesus recommends that his disciples not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. The truth is, Jesus isn't just simply against passing any judgments. After all, all of these conversations have been about how to judge correctly. When Jesus speaks of judgment, that word that he uses, particularly in his day, didn't have the kind of negative connotations that it seems to have in our culture in this moment. To say that you are going to judge someone today, or that someone is judging you, It rings with all of the hostile criticism that we imagine comes with judgment. But the word Jesus uses could also be translated to decide or to separate two things out, to determine what something is. This judgment Jesus is so often describing is really about coming to terms with what is true and what is wrong. It makes absolutely no sense for Jesus to say that he is against discerning right from wrong. 
that he's against deciding between right and wrong, judging good from evil, or that Jesus is hostile to anyone recognizing within themselves or the world around them sin at work, or that we, to obey the law, are supposed to abandon all discernment about how it is to be lived and how it should be applied. But that's how most people quote the passage. Don't judge me. Don't talk about sin to me. Don't try to put your religion on me. There's going to be plenty of times in which Jesus is going to judge the behavior of the people around him. He does it even in this passage, I think, to the Pharisees. You notice he says, you hypocrites. Sounds like judgment to me, doesn't it? So what is Jesus saying when he says, judge not, lest you be judged? Really, it's a part of this broader conversation. Love your enemies is that first command. And then this one, some carefulness that we're supposed to show about the way we judge or the consequences of our judging. There is a unique problem forming in the time of Jesus, particularly around the religious leaders that Jesus will find himself always in opposition to. It is right, after all, for them to follow the law. Jesus never criticizes obedience to God's law. It's right for them to try and discern what pleases God, what's good. It's right to call for justice and to refuse wickedness in the world. But last week, we looked at how the question of loving loving neighbors, let alone enemies, had bogged down in Jesus' day into these complex debates, obscuring who is my neighbor and what are the obligations of love and how far should those obligations of love go. The whole command and the heart of the command had been bogged down by these religious debates that constantly tried to define the limits of those obligations. The real problem was not that they didn't know how to be merciful. We talked about this last week. The problem was they had lost a sense of how God was merciful to them. And having no longer seen in God his mercy, they struggled to extend that mercy to the neighbors and even the enemies around them. I think something similar is happening in our passage today. Jesus' point is not that they should abandon all discernment of good and evil. Never judge what is right or wrong in any situation. That's not what he's saying. His objection is that while they turn that lens of judgment so quickly to the people around them, they reluctantly turn that lens of judgment upon themselves. Their whole world and religious system had turned into judging others and concluding that it was the sins of others that was robbing them of God's blessing and stealing the full plan God had for them as a people. We've seen that in the Pharisees over and over, furious that he's eating with tax collectors, even though those tax collectors are in the process of repenting and changing their lives to follow Jesus. It is because so much of the attention has been turned by the Pharisees on to judging the tax collectors and sinners as the source of all of Israel's problems. If you were with us in our lecture this last week, one of the things we talked about was this emphasis on interpreting the law. We learned the word halakha, the written law, as well as the oral tradition that had built up around interpreting the law. This had become, for so many, the debate that divided Israel into all of the various factions. They were judging who kept the law correctly and who neglected it. And so you get the Pharisees, who are constantly complaining about Jesus' interaction with people like tax collectors and sinners. There's an interesting section in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes who lived at Qumran, who actually opposed the Pharisees. Believe it or not, they thought the Pharisees were too lenient in their interpretation of the law. 
And they used a little pun based on that word halakha. Instead of calling them seekers of the law, they referred to the Pharisees as seekers of smooth things. In Hebrew, it's a pun on the word. Even they divided and looked at people like the Pharisees and said, it's the Pharisees and their loose interpretation that's causing us to lose God's blessing. Then you had other groups like the Zealots who said the problem was not the law at all, but the Roman oppressors who needed to be opposed with swords and daggers. You have some extreme zealots like the Sakari who actually begin raiding Jewish villages and killing other Jews. This world of Jesus in the first century is fragmented and constantly splintering into more and more groups as everyone looks at the other group and says, you are what's keeping me from the full blessing of God in this land. That lens of judgment turning constantly to the people outside of myself, outside of the group that I belong to. My point is that the world that Jesus was speaking to was not a world that was too interested in right or wrong. We just need to stop judging. It was that they were too interested in everyone else's right and wrong to pay any attention to their own life, to apply that sense of judgment to themselves. I was thinking this week about how easy it would have been for Jesus to have done something like this as well, certainly for his disciples. I mean, how great would Jesus' ministry have been if it wouldn't have been for the Pharisees? If they just would have let him preach and not opposed him, think how good it could have been. Or how nice would it have been for Jesus if there hadn't been a Roman empire? He wouldn't have been crucified. He wouldn't have been opposed. How great could things have been for Jesus if they weren't all the time casting blame or opposing him? Well, it's absurd because it's these very things that actually draw out Jesus' teaching in a profound way. And interestingly enough, Jesus, with all of those opponents constantly around him, will still turn his attention to his own disciples and challenge them, correct them, turn his lens of judgment not only to those who oppose him from outside, but onto his own followers, his own disciples, his own closest friends. To be fair, Jesus is speaking in this passage in a kind of proverbial way, like we're familiar We all know, even in the Beatitudes, that it doesn't always feel blessed to be poor. It doesn't always feel blessed to mourn. It doesn't always feel blessed to be persecuted. But we understand in Jesus' words a kind of deeper logic at work, that there is a better thing to receive than just health and wealth and acceptance, that there is something even in the midst of loss that can be more true than the experience of that loss. Jesus speaks in these kind of proverbial ways to force us into asking deeper questions than just the surface level, easy to observe realities. And he does something similar here. Judge and you will be judged. Condemn and you will be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and you will find it given to you. And then to summarize those statements, verse 38, the end For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus recognized that the Jews had largely turned their attention towards the other, away from themselves. They had become obsessed with finding who was to blame outside of them for all of the challenges and issues that Israel was facing. And so they had reaped what they sowed. Their whole world had turned into constant debates and factions and subdividing groups and greater and greater conflict that would build until the great destruction of Israel and its temple and its people in 70 AD. Jesus is suggesting that none of them would have liked hearing this, but they had created the very world by the way in which they judged it that they now found so uncomfortable to be in. 
I have this working theory that I try to apply, and uh, to be fair, it's not always true, but it's proverbial, like what Jesus is saying. I have this way of reminding myself that generally I think life is actually more fair than we realize it is. When I get caught off in traffic, I will often say to myself in a moment of frustration at another driver, I bet that guy gets more tickets than I do over the course of his life. I like to tell myself, it's going to be fair in the end. That way of driving is going to come with its own consequences. I don't need to add my anger to it. When I encounter somebody who has a terrible attitude, who is mean and rude for seemingly no reason, I find myself saying, I bet that way of living doesn't produce a lot of meaningful relationships in that person's life. I bet they don't have a lot of close friends that like spending time with them. When I encounter someone who seems constantly self-centered, self-absorbed, I think, I bet that doesn't actually lead to a lot of significance, but a deeper and deeper insecurity, constantly thinking about yourself so much. Someone who constantly cheats, how sad it is they never get to feel what it's like to genuinely win. You get the idea. I have this way of thinking that, generally speaking, we reap what we sow. The things we do in life have a way of coming back around to us. I think it's pretty close to what Jesus is saying here. What you use to measure will be measured back to you. What you obsess over, what you think is most important in life, has a way of becoming what's most important to you. How you judge is usually the way your world turns into as you yourself become judged by it. There's an interesting postmodern novelist, a secular writer, David Foster Wallace, who was not religious by any means, but understood this principle and equated it with spirituality. He wrote this, if you worship money and things, if, you are, if they are where you tap for real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start to show, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. I think it's a pretty wise observation. The things in life we pursue, the things in life we think matter, the measure by which we determine success tends to be the things that shape our world, that define us, that become the reality we live in. Last week, I pointed out to you that the view of God in which we have determines largely the person we're becoming and how we act towards others. If you see God as constantly judgmental and angry, you tend to be judgmental and angry towards people. However, if you sense God is merciful, it creates in you a new capacity for mercy to others. There's something like that in this statement as well. What you measure life by is usually how your life turns out to be. The things you focus on and obsess over, the things you stare at and worship tend to be the things that define your life. That's exactly the point Jesus makes next. Jesus turns to the question of who they are actually following. Who is leading who? Who is your teacher? Who are you a pupil to? Those are his points. You get what you constantly measure. And in your judging, you don't realize who is actually discipling you, who it is you are learning from and becoming like. 
Jesus says, can a blind leader lead a blind man? No, they both fall into a pit. They are constantly judging and calling people to obedience while they cannot recognize what is going on in their own heart. Can these spiritual leaders teach people to pursue God when they themselves don't know how to pursue God? They are following the world and becoming like it. We all inevitably become like the teacher that we look to, is Jesus' point. Someone is discipling you, teaching you. You are looking at someone in this world, and whether you realize it or not, you are following them and becoming like them. So Jesus comes to what I believe is really the thing he has his attention on, the problem to be addressed. They, in this process of being discipled by the world and constantly judging others, they attempt to remove the speck of dust in their brother's eye, while a whole splinter, a log, obscures the vision of their own eye. In their own blurry-eyed vision, they go around imagining that they are skilled and wise to remove the smallest specks from their neighbor. Imagine if you hired an eye doctor to do some constructive surgery, you losing your eyesight, he comes in to be able to correct the problem, but you learn that the doctor himself is nearly blind. Are you excited about him taking the needle, the small blade to your eye, knowing that he himself can hardly see what he's doing at all? This is Jesus' image for what's happening. They have neglected the judgment of their own heart, their own lives, but yet they go around imagining themselves in a position to judge and correct all of those around them. Here's what Jesus saw clearly. It's not that they were too concerned with sin or obedience. Judge not, lest you be judged. You care too much about right or wrong. This isn't Jesus' concern. His concern is that they care too much about the sin in other people's life while neglecting any interest in the sin in their own life. It's that they are too little concerned with their own sin. They are too slow to recognize what motivates them, who they are following, and the way in which they are measuring the world around them. Their entire energy for discerning and judging is constantly on others and no longer on themselves. I think it's true for so many of us today. We live in a time in which perhaps we have never been greater experts at everything that is wrong with the world and more amateurs at what's wrong with our own lives. How many of us are articulate on every problem our culture is facing? Do we possess any of that same articulation when it comes to what is within our own hearts, within our own lives, within our own faults? One of the commentators I was reading this week, Garland, put it this way. The fault is judging others without first judging oneself using the same measuring stick. The order is judge yourself first, then you can move to help rather than judge another. Another of the commentators put it this way, I liked. Their judging had turned into a pseudo-religion, which is forever trying to make other people better when the cure is a mirror. All of our emphasis constantly looking at others when what we really need is a good, long, hard look at ourselves. Because it's only then, like the one who has removed the log from his own eye, it's then that we're prepared to see and be wise in how we help a brother with the speck in his eye. Suddenly, what we thought this passage was about, you should never judge, is actually really about how we prepare ourselves to be more discerning, to be a better judge of the world around us. It starts with us learning to judge ourselves, to critique ourselves, to be honest about ourselves. 
Can we just abandon judgment altogether? That's what most of us would like if we were really honest, and it's certainly the way the culture would like it. Can't we just stop talking about judgment, right or wrong, sin? Well, that works well until somebody hurts you. It works well until some great injustice shows up in the world around you, until someone is wounded, until you realize that your brother, your sister, your neighbor really does genuinely need help. No matter how much we want to just let go of judgment, eventually things go wrong in our world. At some point, we are called to be people of discernment. In some moment, we have to try and better understand how it is we live in this world and obey God in this world and act in this world with all of its pains and complexities and brokenness. How naive we are to think that we can do that by simply throwing off discernment. We just won't judge anything as right or wrong. And how naive we are of thinking we can do that without having learned to do it first within our own hearts and within our own lives. Let me push that a little bit further. In my experience, the most judgmental people are two kinds of people in this world. Those who have never practiced judging anything because they've tried to live without discerning any right or wrong. Those are usually the ones when a moment comes of pain or difficulty can be among the most ferocious in judging others, having no experience whatsoever with how to correctly judge. There's a second group, those who have never learned to judge themselves. Those who constantly imagine that all of their problems and all of their faults are due to someone else around them, someone else constantly to blame, never acquiring the skills of looking at our own hearts and lives. And so what Jesus does with this passage, the cleverness of pushing these questions deeper and deeper until he comes to that final image, you, recognizing the log in your own eye, he forces us to ask hard questions about ourselves to be honest about ourselves. Let me give you a few of those questions I think are worth you asking. What measure do you use to measure things in life? How do you measure what success looks like for you? What the good life is for you? How do you measure how your life is meaningful or significant? And how are you, what are you using to measure the lives of others around you? How do you decide who is good and who is bad? What do you tend to notice? What do you tend to be irritated by? What are the things you measure? Do you even know? Or have you lost sight of what you measure altogether? If Jesus does nothing else in this passage, then he forces you to stop and ask. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Well, what is it that I'm measuring? What is it I'm constantly thinking about and evaluating? What is it that has my attention? That's where Jesus starts. Then he pushes the second question. And who are you following? Who's your teacher? Who is discipling you? As you're measuring with this measuring stick, who is it that's told you that's what matters? And who is it that's teaching you to use it? Most of us would say, well, Jesus, of course. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Well, Jesus says, you will become and you will look and you will act like the teacher that you are following. Now, that's hard because if I was honest, I don't always look like, act like, and become like Jesus. Most of us could be honest enough to admit there are reactions, there are perspectives in our life that are probably not not being taught by Jesus. And so, could we be honest enough to ask in those moments, who is it that we're following? Who is it that we're modeling this behavior after? 
It will always seem to us like some self-justifying rationality, some this is just how people are, some common sense way of being. But could it be that we are as much disciples of this world as we actually are disciples of Jesus? What are you measuring and who are you following? And that final question, do I see the log in my own eye? How often do I recognize sin? For those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, who have perhaps worked past the major obvious sins in life, how easy it is for us to imagine that we've generally cleaned ourselves up, or perhaps the more tempting thought, how different we are from the people of the world around us. And so by that comparison, that judgment, to turn our eye away from our own hearts and sin altogether. I've used the story before, but it's one of my favorites of G.K. Chesterton, which is well-fitting. He's a British writer. See, we have this British set this morning for my quote. Right after the end of World War I, when all of the optimism had collapsed throughout Europe, there was a newspaper who collected articles from the great thinkers and writers of the day asking them what had gone wrong with the world. They expected most of them would produce long articles about science and politics and philosophy. G.K. Chesterton, one of the famous writers of the period, submitted his article. His entire article, and I'll quote it from memory for you, was this. What is wrong with the world? I am. G.K. Chesterton. We find ourselves in a day when we can point to a lot of things that are legitimately wrong in the world. I'm as conversant and as aware of them and be sure have my own opinions as just about everyone else in the room does. Though I imagine not all of those opinions are the same. Those conversations matter. They're worth having. And God knows we need discernment, wise discernment to live well in these times. But what I think Jesus realized was if the only thing you see, if what you constantly measure and turn to is what's wrong with the world around you, then you are missing the most critical skill necessary to discern and judge those things well. You are a part of what is wrong with the world. Everything that exists in this world also exists within your heart. It exists within you. And those who cannot see it or have paid no attention to it are perhaps more like this world than you care to imagine. It's as hard to do this, to admit this today as it's ever been. Like Chesterton, I am what's wrong with the world. This sin in me is the same sin that is at work in this world. I realize that can be hard to admit. But perhaps that's why Jesus gives us these statements and says them in such shocking ways. You hypocrites. You see the speck, but not the log. You judge and are shocked when you judge. With what you measure, it will be measured back to you. It's a hard word, but I also want to suggest to you that there is a bit of good news in this story, in this message of Jesus as well. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. So much has been in this passage about what we measure and how we measure it. But there is, in Jesus's words, a sense of how God measures as well. That God has his own way of measuring and returning. This image that Jesus uses is of grain being poured into a basket a measure of grain, a predetermined size of a basket in which the grain was poured, 
but to ensure that every last bit of it was received. That grain is pressed down to make more room and shaken to lock the kernels together. Every action that could be to squeeze out a greater margin until finally that grain is running over this basket and all of it is placed in its fullness in your lap, pressed and shaken and running over. This is an image of what God wants to give, how he measures things, the abundance. But it's only ours if we're recognized and if we're willing to receive it to open ourselves, to measure what he measures as valuable. Jesus makes very clear to us that what he wants to do and give is not always wealth. Blessed are the poor. It's not always peace. Blessed are those who mourn. It's not ever wholeness or well-being. Blessed are those who are persecuted, those who will even give their life. At least not in this life, though those beatitudes promise one day to be comforted, to be filled, and to be whole. But those are the things that are too easily corrupted by this world. Those are the things that we often use to measure success in this world, but they're not the things that Jesus uses by this sermon. What are the things that Jesus measures? The things that he longs to give to us, pressed down and shaken and overflowing? Be merciful like your Father who is merciful. Be kind, be gracious. Practice forgiveness. Give so that it might be given to you. If someone asks for your coat, offer them your tunic. Do you remember those words? What God wants to do is give us those things. To give us himself. To give us greater mercy and kindness and wholeness. Not through the things this world measures, but through the things of his kingdom. In the end, what God wants to give us is himself. It's his life, his relationship, his kingdom, his eternity. But those things are only valuable. They only measure up to something if you want them. If those aren't the things you're measuring in life, how much grace have I received? How much mercy do I sense? How much kindness do I see in God? If I don't know how to measure those things in my life, then I miss them altogether. I lose the fact that those are the things God is pouring into my life. And so we are instructed to be careful what we measure. Measure wealth. And you will miss how gracious God has actually been. Measure power and influence, and you'll overlook the sacrifice Christ has made for you. Measure health and well-being, and you'll miss the cost that he paid to give you those things. Because in the end, look at what Christ has actually poured out, what he's given. His life, his body, his possessions, his security, his peace. He gives them to you, all of these things, at the cost of himself. And so we now demand these things from him? Hardly. We open our lives and abandon the measurements of this world. Instead, we turn our attention to what he is pouring into our lives, grace and mercy and forgiveness and peace, and we allow our hearts, our lives, to be changed by them. We judge ourselves and purge these hearts of anything, that would falsely measure the grace that God is giving. We lay down the measurements of this world and open our lives to what he longs to give and find in it a new currency, a new measurement, a new way of receiving this generosity of God himself. This morning we have a unique opportunity to do that as our tradition is to take communion together. I'm going to ask those who are helping to go ahead and come forward and begin passing out the elements We do this the first of every month, but perhaps today in this message, it's a unique opportunity to recognize that God wants to give you something. 
there's an opportunity to receive something. Uh, by the world's measurement, this is grape juice and bread that we tore up before service. But when you recognize what they are, by God's grace and mercy, by his sacrifice, you receive something by a totally different measurement, don't you? That this is Christ's body broken for you. That this is Christ's blood who has been poured out for you. That this is Christ offering you a new life and a new measurement by which to live by. And so we take it this morning asking ourselves those three questions again. What measurement am I using? Can I measure just how much I'm receiving in this moment? Who am I following and who is discipling me? Am I willing to submit myself to the one who calls me into this sacrifice? And do I recognize the sin in my own heart? Do I recognize again my, this morning my need for what Christ is pouring out? I'm going to take a moment and let those elements be passed out and perhaps allow you to reflect personally. We'll read Christ's words again and pray over these elements and receive them. But this morning, let us receive them with pure hearts, with hearts turning to judge the sin within us and receiving by the measurement of his grace again, forgiveness and mercy to us. Jesus was gathered with his disciples he said to them I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I tell you I will not eat of it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God and he took a cup and when he had said thanks he said take this and divide it among yourselves for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes and he took the bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As we pray over these elements, let us pray that God would again cleanse our hearts, forgive us of our sins, see those places that his grace and mercy has come to us, And that by taking these elements, let us renew again that we will be his disciples. That we will shape our lives to be formed like him in all things. And let us again sense the measurement of that which Christ has done for us. The goodness of his body broken and his blood poured out. And that by this measurement, this grace and mercy, we might live in this world anticipating its fullness to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cost that you have paid for what you have done that we might receive you that we might die to the things of this world that we might find poured into our own lives grace and mercy pressed down and shaken and overflowing and ours even this morning by these elements God where we have fallen short where sin continues to plague our hearts where it pollutes our view of this world, forgive us. Help us by your spirit to see it. And let us renew our commitment to follow you, to judge our own hearts and lives first, and to be changed by receiving your grace and mercy. And God, free us from the way in which we measure our lives by the things of this world. Let not the things of this world matter to us, 
But God, let us live in all things and in all ways, discerning your goodness and grace and your kingdom to come. That by this, God, we might be wise and discerning in these times. That we might have the wisdom to remove the log in our own eye. And this, God, from it, the wisdom to remove the speck in our brothers. That we would do it by the same love and mercy that we have received first from you. And that we would be like you in it. So we pray your blessing again over this bread and over this cup that we might receive them as your disciples with pure hearts, knowing and receiving by your grace and mercy the full measure of what you have given us this morning. By your spirit, let it be.